Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. A very special Mooney Goes Wild ahead of us tonight. So if you will sit back and allow me, take you on a journey back in time, not very far, just to December of last year, 2023. Over two weeks, 156 heads of state and government, 22 leaders of international organisations, 780 ministers, 500 mayors and thousands of delegates gathered in Dubai for the Conference of Parties, better known to you and me as COP28. We have worked very hard to secure a better future for our people and our planet. We should be proud of our achievement. An enhanced, balanced, but make no mistake, historic package to accelerate climate action. It is the UAE consensus. Well, indeed, it all sounds very promising, but COP28 was not without its controversies. In fact, it looked for a time that there might not be an agreement. Uh, the European Union position would be set up with the European Commissioner and say that the text can't be accepted. It is not strong enough. It doesn't provide the leap we need to make away from the use of fossil fuels and to a new, cleaner, more secure and fairer economy. So we'll be arguing for changes in the text which we think will be better for the every country around the world and that's what we have to negotiate in the coming hours. But then we heard this. And our correspondent George Lee. George, good morning. Uh, at seven o'clock good I morning. came into studio and they were just going into plenary session at uh, the, the COP meeting to look at this final draft. And I literally lifted my head and there was a, a flash from <laughs> Reuter saying a deal had been done. Amazing. It really was so quick this morning, you wouldn't believe it. Uh, as they trundled into this uh, plenary session, it, there was a lot of optimism because there had been very significant changes in the text that was proposed and that text came out uh, in the small hours of this morning, about four o'clock, five o'clock here, local time. And so the issue then was everybody, all of the negotiating blocks would have to consider that. Now, in the text, it was so much hardened compared to the on fossil fuels and so on compared to the previous text. Eamon Ryan was very, very positive going into this particular meeting. He didn't know what would happen at this plenary session. It was open to anybody to object. Uh, the the UAE presidency of the COP had spent about two and a half days listening to people you know, uh, and uh, dealing with them behind the scenes to get to this one document. The question was, would one document unite them all? And indeed it did. So it has come out and it, it, it's, it's, it's harder in terms, much harder in terms of fossil fuels. It's the first time ever that a United Nations um, climate related summit has put fossil fuels right into an agreement. And the way that um, Sultan al-Jabbar has said it here, he said, this is going to be a paradigm shift. It has the potential to redefine our economies. It moves us uh, to a new mindset whereby the solutions to, to climate change are going to become the drivers of a new economic age. So what they've said is that all of the countries are now agreeing that they need to rapidly reduce greenhouse gas emissions in line and we're talking about 198 countries in line with the Paris target of one and a half degrees 
that's going to be tripling renewable energy capacity. It's going to be efficiency improvements doubling by 2030, accelerating the move of unabated coal use. In other words, if you're going to have a new coal-powered um, fire station, you're going to have to capture the carbon dioxide. But particularly this, sent- this sentence was the, the, the key. Transitioning away from fossil fuels in energy systems in a just and orderly and equitable manner and accelerating action in this critical decade. That was really important to them so that they will achieve net zero by 2050 in keeping with the science. So in there you have fossil fuels. You don't have the words um, uh, phasing out, out, but you make it clear that you're going away from them. You're transitioning. You're doing it now. There are huge changes happening in the types of fuel we are consuming nowadays. And much of it, we hope, will be better for the planet. Just before COP28, on November 28th, we heard of the world's first long-haul flight, fully powered by 100% sustainable aviation fuel. Here's a clip from Jonathan Samuels of Sky News, who was on that Virgin Atlantic flight. Well, we're now about halfway across the Atlantic on this record-breaking flight using 100% sustainable aviation fuel. This flight about 70% greener than most other planes in the air today. But sustainable aviation fuel, in this case mainly used cooking oil, isn't the future. It's simply too expensive to make and there isn't enough raw material. Scientists say hydrogen potentially could be the future, but that is many decades away and this is the best solution for now. And airlines and the aviation sector says it's now down to the government to make sure that they've got enough SAF, as it's known, to put in their tanks. Sustainable Aviation Fuel, SAF, SAF. Now, I don't know if you are one of the people looking forward to the inauguration of the first hydrogen bank in Europe late last year. European Hydrogen Week might well have passed you by. But for many people, this was a big deal, including President of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, who had this to say. I remember very vividly the moment when we launched the European Green Deal exactly four years ago. Back then, clean hydrogen was the dream of a few visionaries. Those visionaries believed that clean hydrogen could be central to our transition towards climate neutrality, with its potential to power heavy industries, to propel trucks and trains, and to store seasonal energy. Today, four years later, the hydrogen economy is blooming. The first hydrogen buses are running in European cities, from Riga to Barcelona. Construction works have just begun on the port of Rotterdam to build a hydrogen network that will span for over 1,000 kilometers. And weeks ago, the world's first plane powered by liquid hydrogen cruised the skies of Slovenia. It is the dawn of the clean hydrogen era. European Hydrogen Week, which was held last October, highlighted the role of hydrogen in the energy transition. As the world works to achieve the goals of the Paris Agreement, hydrogen technologies play an increasingly vital role. To discuss the pros and cons of hydrogen, in studio with me, our motoring correspondent, well, not just our motoring correspondent, others too, Michael Sheridan. Thanks for coming in, Michael. Ainan Ilana is also here in studio and from his home in Malahide, Dr. 
Dr. Richard Collins. We're going to speak now with the Chief Executive Officer of Hydrogen Europe, Yorgo Chatsimarkakis. Hello, Yorgo. Thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Now, can you begin by giving us a little bit of background to European Hydrogen Week? The European Hydrogen Week was the second edition of its kind. We started it in 2022 for the first time. The first time we organized it because we had uh, too much money. We are a non-for-profit association and organization under Belgian law. And we asked our members whether the money that we had too much should be invested into something which is a triple thing. On one hand, an exhibition. Second uh, point would be a high-level political conference. And the third is a B2B networking event, but also discussion event. They accepted. We organized last year first time and had no losses. And this year we have... uh, quite some money to invest, to reinvest into that conference for next year. It is a one-stop shop. It is where people in hydrogen from Europe, but also from very, very important countries outside Europe, come to show where they are, to show how mature their technologies are, to understand how they can get connected, but also to listen to high-level politicians And we are talking here about ministers and especially the commissioners and the commission president of the European Commission, which has an important legislative role, to listen what they would expect from technologies and what they would provide, on the other hand, as a regulatory framework, but also as funding and financing in order to ramp up these technologies. So, all in all, a very successful week with 220 exhibitors, with more than 200 speakers, and with 5,000 guests, so participants for all of the four days, and the fifth day was a a digital day. Now, Ursula von der Leyen is talking about green hydrogen, and she's referencing aircraft and buses, but what exactly is green hydrogen? And when I saw you on TV recently, you suggested that Ireland might well be a good place to produce hydrogen. So green hydrogen is defined as hydrogen that stems from renewable energy sources. Whenever you have wind energy or sun energy from photovoltaics or you have hydropower from from rivers, this so-called renewable energy transforms into electricity, but it's hard to store it. It's hard to in some cases, to bring so much of this new um, renewable energy into the power grids because they are too small. This is where hydrogen comes in. This renewable power splits water into oxygen and hydrogen. And the oxygen can go to the air or can be used industrially. The hydrogen stores the energy that has been used to split the molecule and can be then used at a later term to be repowered back again or to be used as a chemical substance. And this is why it's so important because there are a lot of chemical processes or industrial processes where hydrogen is needed anyway. And today 
the hydrogen we are using is fossil hydrogen. It stems from mainly from natural gas, which is a fossil and emits lots of CO2. And if you transform all these uh, mechanisms uh, and all these industrial processes towards green hydrogen, you reduce dramatically the CO2 emissions that are used today in steel. Uh, production or in the production of ammonia for fertilizers or in the production uh, and refining of uh, fuels for cars and uh, kerosene for airplanes. And in a second stage, you could replace all this. Not only you produce with lower emissions, but you replace the kerosene in, in an airplane completely with synthetic fuels based on hydrogen or even with hydrogen as such. Uh, we are in Europe uh, operating buses based on hydrogen as such and only. Uh, I myself, I came every day to my office with a car running on hydrogen, nothing else, just hydrogen. And the process here is that the hydrogen via a fuel cell is put into power and heat because If you take the hydrogen, have it in your tank after you have fueled your car with that at a hydrogen refueling station, and if your car absorbs the oxygen from the air, the fuel cell will unite them again. So they get married again, H2 and O, which is water. Water comes out your exhaust pipe, and this process leads to electricity and heat. The electricity runs your electric motor and the heat, well, in the, in the wintertime, heats your car. In summertime, it goes into the atmosphere. So what, what we see here is that hydrogen definitely, based on renewable sources, is the fuel of the future. And why is Ireland so prominently located and best located in order to produce it? Because Ireland has lots of winds. It's exposed to big, big, big wind energies and also huge space of maritime um, possibilities. Uh, the real island, as we all know, is, is a huge uh, country with a maritime zone, economic zone that could be used uh, for all this. And I'm not just thinking about offshore wind turbines because they are also difficult to install. No, I'm thinking about kite technologies. So we are developing uh, vessels that are torn by kite seals that go one kilometer up in the air and they have massive power to pull basically the vessel. On the vessel, you have the production of renewable electricity, which is transformed on the vessel to hydrogen. This vessel then is milked by other ships that collect the hydrogen and bring it back to shore or where it needed. So Ireland would be one of the role models for um, this use of production and use of hydrogen. And that is why I mentioned it in my TV interview at Euronews. The mechanics of this, suppose I have a windmill and it's producing a kilowatt, a flow of energy of a kilowatt, and it comes down. Now, I can do either of two things with that. I can, if I'm, for instance, I can 
store that energy in a battery and drive cars. In other words, stay electrical right through. Or I can use that with electrolysis to manufacture, in a sense, hydrogen. Now, these are two completely different processes. Now, there's always a loss in everything like this. There's a loss at every stage. I've now got, I'm creaming off hydrogen from electrolysis. I have to compress that to liquefy it and so forth. And there must be a penalty for that. Is this more or less efficient than using the electricity directly? That's an excellent question. And it's a question that has become, I would say, a fetish because many people say we only go for solutions that are super efficient. And this is exactly where our problem lies because we are, as humans, um, of course, not only depending on the energy efficiency, but also of space efficiency, cost efficiency. We call that the system efficiency. And if you just watch at energy efficiency, you're lost. Um, why am I saying that? Because the mother of all energy production for us humans is photosynthesis. Photosynthesis is, so to say, the collection of sunlight for the production of plants. That's where we all live from. And the uh, efficiency of this process is 3%. Um, so, Yes, electricity directly use has an efficiency over 80%. Our hydrogen and fuel cells has an efficiency about 60%. A diesel car has an efficiency of 27% and photosynthesis is 3%. So you see, comparing efficiencies is interesting and it's good. But what do I do in a country where I have lots of renewables but not enough power grid, let alone batteries, to store or to use this. Give you one example. One of the most advanced countries in, in Europe to use electrical power is, of course, Germany. They had last year a curtailment of 4.3 billion euro. So the value of 4.3 billion euro in electricity could not be used by households, by industry, by the whole country, because their power grids were not big enough. And if we now think, okay, then let's ramp up the power grids or let's install massive batteries. Yes, it's a good idea, but it will delay the decarbonization by many, many years, if not decades. Why? Because First of all, the licensing takes too long and we could use in the meanwhile efficient um, hydrogen or efficient gas pipelines for hydrogen. So gas pipelines exist. Their retrofitting is easy. You need to change some compressors, but most of the pipelines themselves fit. And you could use that. So yes, you might lose some of the energy, but it's better to lose only 20% rather than lose 100%. So that's my argument here. When it comes to batteries, also excellent technology. We fully support that. We need batteries also in our hydrogen cars and buses. However, the critical raw material that you need for batteries, lithium, cobalt and others, are not enough. We have seen that the prices have gone up 
the late the, the last years because the demand on battery cars has gone up and it doesn't seem that we have easy access to the critical raw material that we need um, in our case we need only 10% for our cars, 10% only uh, of the critical raw material because our fuel cells do not need that much of cobalt uh, and lithium, not at all. They need just a very, very thin membrane of uh, iridium uh, and platinum and that's only 10% of the demand. If we go to the fueling infrastructure, we even need only 5% of the critical raw material. So you see, it's not only about energy efficiency, it's also about the efficiency of use of critical raw material. And that's why system efficiency is the better word. And then the whole, I come back to the word fetish, the whole fetish of energy efficiency, which had its reasons. I, I don't deny that, but now we cannot anymore believe in that fetish. We need to have a broader view on things and uh, this is why hydrogen becomes so prominently involved into the transition right now. Now refueling seems to be the weakness of this system. If you head off in your car from Brussels, uh, you can't go very far on your one tank, you'll get a few hundred kilometers or something like that and there won't be a hydrogen refueling station there. Do you envisage the, the refueling station of the future being a station with a hectare or two of solar panels, a large windmill overhead generating several thousand kilowatts of energy and this into a local hydrogen manufacturing plant in a scent on site is that a realistic proposition that we could establish a network of such sites how much hectares would we need mostly for solar panels and how many kilowatts would we need to come from from a windmill to set up a scheme like that no need to transport hydrogen there or not it'll be produced locally is that a realistic proposition or is this just a pipe dream so first of all, in order to fuel a car, you need five minutes, in my case, for 600 kilometers. So the compression is at 700 bar, which is quite high. And I use hydrogen in its gases form. There are already trucks that can be fueled with liquid hydrogen. Liquid um, hydrogen means that you need to cool it down to minus 252 degrees Celsius. If you use it directly, you don't have boil-off effects. That's why it's used for trucks and not for cars. Cars would stand most of the time. Trucks are used uh, most of the time steadily. And that is why it makes sense there. And there the fueling process, of course, is much faster because it's, it's uh, liquid. Now, your question is absolutely uh, relevant. Where does the hydrogen come from? Will it be produced around the fueling station or will it be imported and transported towards the fueling station like is done now with most of the uh, fuels, diesel uh, or petrol that, that we use? I think it will be a mix because it really depends on how the renewable production in a country will be. Now, if you go to Saudi Arabia uh, or uh, countries that are exposed to sun uh, very much so, then it makes really sense to produce via photovoltaic around the fueling station. 
Um, in Germany, it would be much, much more difficult. Uh, and even in Ireland, photovoltaic is not really the option that brings the result. It's rather wind, but also not on a um, regular basis. In the end, it will be a mix of both. You will see renewable production of hydrogen um, locally, but you also will see lots of import via the uh, via the tubes, via the uh, pipelines, and also with uh, uh, vehicles, uh, with carriers that, that bring hydrogen uh, to fueling station like is done today. So today, my fueling station that I use very close to um, the airport of Brussels um, will uh, be um, equipped or will be fueled with uh, uh, vehicles, with trucks that bring the hydrogen um, in, uh, in, in tubes. And this is important as a transition. In the long run, we will see that the pipeline system will definitely cover most of the parts of Europe that are connected, of course, to pipelines, and they will take the hydrogen from there. But you are also right. At the moment, if I fuel my car and come to Ireland, I would have a hard time to come back. But this chicken and egg dilemma that you always have introducing a new technology will be overcome by an obligation to build these hydrogen refueling stations. The European Parliament and the European member states have issued a law that obliges the European Union to come up with 600 refueling stations all over Europe, um, which will then be installed at every urban node and at the big corridors from north to south, from east to west. And uh, that will bring us some 600 fueling stations until 2030. It is a start. It is a start that will be used especially by trucks and by utility cars. And once you have a fueling station somewhere, uh, also private users like myself would then use it. But this is uh, an obligation uh, which tells us, okay, this infrastructure will be built up. In the beginning, it will be, again, a mix of um, where the hydrogen comes from. Uh, but you need to equip your hydrogen refueling stations with hydrogen. And this all is a market-making mechanism. It ramps up the production, but also the delivery. And this will keep us quite busy over the next six years. Jorgo, you have a hydrogen car. How does it compare in cost with an electric car? Is it exceedingly expensive, the car itself, I mean? 58,000 bucks. So with a comparable size of car is already cheaper today. But what I want to say is this is because the industry, in this case, it's Hyundai uh, and Toyota, both are heavily involved in, in that market segment. Um, they, of course, want to keep the price where it is, but it shows you that we are competitive already. Uh, the other truth is that most of the member states are focused on battery cars at the moment. So in the end, it will be a decision. Um, do I have the infrastructure to uh, to charge my car or to refill my car with hydrogen. If the infrastructure is there, people have the free choice. If not, you can imagine what happens. Nobody will buy a hydrogen car. That's why I mentioned the 600 minimum fueling stations until 2030. Again, keeps us very busy already today. Yorgo, just before Michael Sheridan joins the conversation, can I just ask you what type of car you're driving? What's the make and model? 
It is the Hyundai Nexo. Uh, I have four daughters, so uh, the Mirai is the Toyota Mirai is is rather uh, a nice car for for golf players. <laughs> Nexo is more of space. Huh? It's an SUV uh, that has enough space to carry your four daughters around. The um, availability of hydrogen cars is really poor at the moment. Even the availability of electric cars to consumers is very poor in Ireland and they're exceedingly expensive if you price them per seat. Our taxes in Ireland are very high and European cars uh, always come in at least 10, 15, 20 percent dearer over here. What is the menu going to be like for people who are excited by hydrogen? I'm excited by hydrogen. Um, So what is the menu going to be like in terms of what people would be realistically able to buy? You can't even buy a hydrogen car in Ireland at the moment. They're not on sale. And even Toyota's plans to bring in the Mirai, they were only going to bring them in and lease them to people. So realistically here, they're not on the menu, but what will be on the menu and how soon will we see uh, the availability of affordable cars? Well, it all depends on Ireland's readiness to install hydrogen refueling stations. Uh, that's where the obligation comes in. That's why we insisted so much on obliging member states uh, to do that, because some of them are super advanced, like uh, the Netherlands, like Belgium, uh, like Denmark was, and like Germany. They want to have freedom of choice. They want to install different technologies. France is catching up uh, big time now and also the UK. There are other countries. Uh, I mean, let, let me mention my, my second home, which is Greece, super reluctant and slow and believe that they cannot um, pay for two infrastructures. But this is utterly wrong because I was mentioning that uh, two infrastructures are in the end cheaper than one. Why? Because with all the dependency on the power grids that we have, if we put uh, the electrical driving on top, this will be, well, a a big burden for the power grids. And this is where hydrogen can help to balance this out. We have made this calculation. Two infras are cheaper than one. But I'm very, very honest to you, It really depends on politicians. It really depends on the priority that uh, are given to the different technologies by the politicians. It's as simple as that. Uh, In Ireland, I met with your minister, Eamon, and he is um, absolutely interested. I have never seen a minister so keen on on being explained all these things. So what I want to say is, it really depends on the politicians. So my car in I'm, I, I'm, uh, in the German scheme is 16,000 euro cheaper than in other countries. Why? Because the Germans have up to 100 hydrogen refueling stations. They have automotive industry. BMW, by the way, is also producing a passenger car. Daimler Trucks is producing uh, a liquid hydrogen truck. And what I want to say is the Germans are involved. They want to see the success of this technology. Uh, Greeks aren't. So you see, it is in the end a question of whether or not politicians buy it. And this is my job to give all the alternatives to describe which bottlenecks you have by focusing only on hydrogen or only on electricity or by (laughs) de-bottleneck your mobility Uh, by focusing on both. This is the best solution, by the way, as it will 
make decarbonisation, as we call it, much faster. Michael, you've driven a hydrogen car, haven't you? Yeah, hydrogen, what was it? hydrogen fuel cell cars, the reality is downsizing the machinery and the gubbins needed to actually make a hydrogen car go, it takes up, a, they take up a lot of space. So you lift the bonnet on a hydrogen car, there's, you couldn't drop a spanner in it. It, it. It's stuffed full of equipment needed to process and generate electricity because a hydrogen car is an electric car getting its energy from this fantastic um, source. I mean, hydrogen, there's, you're, you're pushing against an open door here. Everybody wants to see hydrogen succeed as a fuel source. It's just, there's the interest from the car manufacturers themselves is, is very low. It works in heavy goods vehicles, um, trains, anything where there's room to put in the plant, the machinery necessary to make and generate electricity using hydrogen. They're fantastic. So for trucks, haulage, trains, buses, it's it's brilliant. Well, well I remember 20-something years ago being in Iceland yeah, with you, Richard and Reykjavik and they were trialling hydrogen buses at that stage. And, and I thought we were going to see them all over the place. And they geothermal, which is, you know, which is fantastic yeah. to use to generate it. A hydrogen fuel cell car, and I've driven a number of them, um, and I drove yeah, well, the well, prototypes so, well, years ago. What model ago. was it you were driving? Basically, and what was the difference? I mean, where did you not have space to drop your spanner? Oh, well, no, that's if you, li- if you lift the bonnet and you go into the boot. So you're compromised <laughs> in terms of just general living and what you'd expect in a car being able to throw the buggy into the boot and so on you'll always have to find creative ways to use the space so so the the reality of driving them is absolutely gorgeous they're like electric cars the fueling is such a joy to spend five or six minutes refueling as opposed to having to wait your minimum in in ireland most people will go to a fast charger it'll take them 45 minutes to get a decent amount of charge before they can you know get further on their way or charge overnight on their domestic electricity to get enough um, range into their car a hydrogen fuel cell car is is powered by electric motors so it's fully automatic they're very easy to drive and use like any other electric car. It's just the source it's getting its electricity from is hydrogen as opposed to you plugging in somewhere to mm. charge up your batteries. And the trade-off is they're able to have a much smaller rechargeable battery pack because they only need a small amount to to be able to deliver DC current to the motors to make the motors turn. So you've one motor if it's a front-wheel drive car or a rear-wheel drive car. A lot of electric cars and a lot of hydrogen fuel cell cars will have two motors, one powering the front wheels, one powering the rear wheels. But the menu isn't there. There's absolutely nothing in Ireland you can buy. You can't get a Mirai, you can't get a Hyundai either. There's only one hydrogen manufacturing plant, production plant, Hydrogen Ireland have that. There's no uh, interest in from any sort of commercial interest. And this is where, again, the whole thing has to be promoted and we praise hydrogen being promoted but there's no interest in it in the UK I think there's only three or four hydrogen filling stations in total so what are the but chances there is one here you were able to go and refill oh no 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 sorry there, there is one here I wasn't able to go and refill there that was used for the hydrogen bus project others I've driven hydrogen fuel cell cars in Europe ah, I uh, see ah, okay. I've driven ones made by Mercedes uh, early prototype by GM uh, way back in the day mm. uh, Toyota and, and, and Hyundai they would they would have events as well and you'd have opportunities to drive these because you're going suggesting Ireland is a good place to produce the no, wind and, produce the electricity no, and green, cheap green hydrogen this. green hydrogen is absolutely fantastic and I'm totally with them uh, like a, a bula boss to the man I mean promoting this is terrific because it makes so much sense I mean hydrogen you know, if we, we should all be massive fans. The most abundant thing and all you've got coming out the tailpipe is water. I mean, it is utterly fantastic. The reality is we have no way of using it now. We can talk about it and we can look forward to it. But by getting excited about it now here, we're going to be really frustrated 
because we can't well, get Well, the conversation has to start somewhere. It does. Isn't and, that right? And, and let's big up hydrogen. But it, but unfortunately, we have to wait until the powers that be and the giants of industry, which are all in Europe, and the legislation, which is all coming from Europe, tells us and then offers us more things. But the car companies won't make anything until they can make it on their own terms and in their own way profitable. They know with the stroke of a pen that legislation can change and they can all of a sudden have something which was making the money and isn't. So they'll only produce the things when they can control whether it makes money for them or not. And that was the same with EVs. And I've talked to many heads of companies and board directors of companies, board directors in BMW and so on. And they know how fragile a politician is with a pen and legislation. The problem is, the problem is quite simply that fossil fuels are too cheap. There's too much of them and they're too cheap. And I mean, people looking at the pumps today saying, how can she say that when it's nearly two euros a litre for, for, for diesel or for petrol? But a lot of that is actually tax. Taking it out of the ground by the oil companies, too cheap, too many licences still being issued. We're still going, the, the big oil is still talking with big money. And until that is shut up and until that is put away, the rest of the thing is on a hiding to nothing. There's too much money in oil and there still is. Richard, you want to get in there? Yes, on that subject, as uh, an interesting thought, um, the big fossil fuel companies, they could benefit if we used blue hydrogen. In other words, if you look at how hydrogen is manufactured, now I understand that about half of it comes from fossil fuels, only something like 3% comes from renewables. So they must be tempted to go into this technology and produce blue hydrogen, I mean, and and go in that direction. Is this a real threat or a real factor in this? And if they do, what is the consequence for carbon emissions? Well, first of all, your observation is absolutely right. It is interesting for oil and gas companies to look into the blue solution. What does it mean? It means that we don't split water into oxygen and hydrogen, but we split methane, which is CH. Four, so natural gas, we split it into H2, so hydrogen, and by uh, using warm water, the other part will get married to oxygen, CO2 comes out. So one kilo of hydrogen in this steam methane reforming method yields nine to 10 kilo of CO2, bad ratio. And blue means that we take the Uh, CO2, uh, we capture it and we store it underground. Uh, This is then blue. Uh, This is the famous carbon capture storage technology. It is cheaper at the moment than green. In the long run, it is not cheaper. It will be seen as a transition technology. And um, I can also see, I was mentioning already the, the change of green parties that were advocating green hydrogen only before, uh, but now are accepting blue indeed as a transition. But there are other colors as well. There is turquoise hydrogen, which is based on waste, especially plastic waste, but also residual waste are very, very important sources. Pyrolysis is a technology that heats up uh, the molecules more than 800 degrees Celsius, which means that there is no combustion, but there is basically a chemical process in the end that yields also clean hydrogen and carbon solid. So carbon will not get married to oxygen and yield CO2, but stays in a solid, it's a 
powder, sort of a powder, um, um, which then can be used as a feedstock for electrical, for the electrical infrastructure, which is super important. Um, and there is also, of course, in some countries, nuclear hydrogen. They use also the electrolysis, but uh, not based on renewables, but on, on nuclear. That would be then uh, uh, red hydrogen. What I want to say is there are many other sources as well. The green hydrogen is excuse my French, it's sexy, it's super attractive, people like it. But in order to ramp it up sufficiently, we will take some time and we are dependent on the renewable energy uh, infrastructure. Um, there is one new element which is the white hydrogen, which is um, natural hydrogen. So far, in looking for gas and oil, uh, hydrogen was disturbing. It also exists in its natural form. Uh, but now it becomes the uh, cherished, uh, the cherished uh, molecule. Um, and there are big, big volumes and big reservoirs where natural hydrogen can be found uh, and natural hydrogen can be uh, brought uh, in into the process much cheaper. Uh, it's also, it renews itself than underground. And these are things that we will look into, which is why I would say I fully can understand if somebody says today, I don't buy a hydrogen car in Ireland because there's no fueling station. But we should look into the other industries. We should look into airplanes that will use mm, synthetic kerosene based on, on hydrogen, wherever it comes from, but mostly from green hydrogen, let's say in South Africa, produced in South Africa, where you have huge chemical uh, engineering companies that can use chemical processes to produce these e-kerosenes. And then we can decarbonize aviation big time. Same applies to maritime, where we already can use ammonia, which is a combination of hydrogen with nitrogen from the air. 80% of our air are nitrogen. And it's also an easy process to get there and can be used as a fuel in maritime uh, uh, mobility. So you see, it's not just cars and buses. This is a very visible and tangible starting point. But the real value of the hydrogen revolution is in other forms, is especially in industry and in other forms of mobility, um, well, based on aviation and maritime. Jorgo, I can tell you're absolutely passionate about hydrogen and we look forward, I suppose, to a cleaner world in the future. Jorgo, thank you very much indeed. Many thanks to you. Many thanks. Absolutely fascinating stuff. More details, as always, on the website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Time now to say hello to Terence Flanagan at his home in Dublin 15. And Niall Hatch is at his home in County Wicklow. Terry, I must start by saying congratulations on your documentary about the pigeons, which was broadcast recently. We had a huge response. Yeah, I had a, a huge response myself to not only on, on uh, Twitter or X, as it's now called, but also lots of people who got in touch to say what a wonderful programme it was. And isn't it amazing to think how people look upon pigeons and yet they, they, they listen to a programme like that and they'd be amazed by the facts that they hear from it because they are an incredible bird. And it's done really well in the Apple podcast charts for nature in Ireland. And I see that we actually have <laughs> something like eight of the top 10 places with our nature output, which is terrific. But but your documentary did really well. And I think it's it's only fair that we take our <coughs> caps off to you and say, well done. Ah, oh, well, thank you very much indeed. You're welcome. Niall. 
Derek and, and Terry, uh, just to echo that, fantastic program about pigeons. One of my favourite groups of bird, uh, and I learned a lot from it too. I thought I knew a lot about pigeons, but uh, I learned even more from that. So very well done. <laughs> a great listen. And people can still listen. It's, it's still there. So we put a note about it on the website uh, today. So if you want to find the podcast, you can listen back. Now, Terry, you're here to talk to us about an interesting video you received from one of our colleagues. Yes, Brian Lally, who worked with us many, many years ago. Brian sent me a a video clip. He was away on holidays in Lanzarote and he was sitting out having a drink and he noticed this unusual bird, not very far in front of him, 10 or 15 metres in front of him. So he took out his phone and he videoed it and it was an egret. But when he sat there watching the egret just to watch to see what he was doing, the bird was standing beside a manhole cover. And he was intently looking down at the manhole cover. And every so often, an insect, which when you look closely at it, you see that it's a cockroach. Cockroaches were coming out of the manhole cover. And what was the bird doing? Eating them. So every time he had one, stood back a little bit, waited for the next one to come out, had another one. So that's how the bird was feeding in Lanzarote. Niall, now, do we have cattle egrets in Ireland? I know we've got the little egret and we've spoken about them many times on the programme. I think, in fact, we were one of the first radio programmes to report on that. So could you describe, if you would, what the cattle egret looks like, Niall, and what's going on here? Because they're very patient birds. Uh, yeah, absolutely, and it's a fascinating video. Um, so just to explain what egrets are, egrets are members of the heron family. Most of the egrets, especially the ones you'd see in Europe, are pure white. At least the feathers are pure white, so that's how you can tell them. So for people who are familiar with a grey heron, an egret essentially is like a slightly smaller but similarly shaped uh, all-white bird with a long snake-like neck, long legs and a long pointed dagger-like beak. Now the little egret that you mentioned there, that's a bird that started to colonise Ireland from the, the late 1990s onwards and now it's breeding quite wide at many locations around Ireland it's thought that climate change helped that species to come here because egrets tend to be warm weather loving species the cattle egret it's it's a slightly less elegant looking egret it's still mostly white it's a slightly dumpier a bit more rotund still with quite a long neck in the breeding plumage they get quite an attractive shade of orange on their chest and on their heads and in Brian's video you can still see a little trace of that in the winter in the non-breeding season which is what we're in at the moment they have that Um, so that's the way you tell it from uh, from a little egret and also it, it has paler legs. That's another way to tell it. Now um, what you see with, usually with cattle egrets, the, the, the experience most people would have of them, at least on television, would be seeing them in places like the Serengeti, the open savannas, riding round on the backs of zebra and wildebeest. But in southern Europe, you'll often see them in fields with cattle, hence their name, and they associate very much with livestock. So they'll walk through the grasslands behind the cows. The cows presumably are kicking up all sorts of, of, of insects and spiders and everything. And what happens then is that the egrets are running behind them and feed on them. And they'll also land on the backs of the cattle and pick off ticks and other parasites. So they do, they do the cows a, a benefit. What seems to be happening here in Lanzarote is that this species has learned to latch on to another type of livestock in the form of us humans. That's what it's done. They're obviously quite familiar to being around large mammals, such as ourselves. We're not quite as big as a cow, but we're, we're, we're quite big compared to an egret. And it sees that here's a, a food source that it can exploit. So it's taking these cockroaches out from the edge of this manhole cover. And of course, in doing that, it's got kind of that all to itself because there aren't many other birds or other predators that, you know, that could handle a cockroach that would be so comfortable around human beings. It's obviously in quite a populated area. You can hear the people talking at the, the cafe and bar tables. It's right there on the city streets. So I've never seen a, a cattle egret in that kind of environment, but it just shows how adaptable they are. And as a species that we may start to see more of here in Ireland, they are increasing. They haven't bred here yet, um, but we are getting increasing numbers of records. So do keep an eye out in those fields when you see any, mm. any cows particularly. You might be some cattle egrets there. <laughs> There's no cattle in this 
this video, by the way, and you can see it by visiting our website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. But I want to say to you, Noel, why is it not getting sick? Now, if I was to pick up a cockroach and eat it, surely to God I'd have Lanzarote tummy or the equivalent of cockroach tummy. Why isn't the bird getting sick? The fact of it is that people who've watched I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here will see that you probably can't eat oh, cockroaches. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Depen- no, no. Depending Don't encourage on where- anybody. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend that. I wouldn't imagine they're very nice. But birds, of course, do have much stronger digestive systems than we do. And this catalogue has been eating creepy crawlies like this since since <laughs> very early on in its life. So it's, it's built up an immunity to any bugs they would have in them. It, birds like that were susceptible or terribly susceptible to food poisoning and diseases that they get from insects that they, they would have evolved, they wouldn't be surviving with us today. So they have much stronger constitutions than we do. And if you think about it, if they're rooting around in, in things like um, pats of cow dung in fields, which is where often they'd find things like dung beetles and larvae and so on, if they can eat directly out of cow pats, I think that, well, I don't know, actually, I was going to say maybe a Lanzarote street isn't so bad, but maybe it is, actually, I don't know. And it's a terrific video. Can I just go back to another video that we posted a couple of weeks ago, Terry, and that was your video of the otter in Harbour Park. How many views did you get? Oh, 50 or 60,000 views. And lots and lots of, of reposts and likes and that because it was a very unusual video. I've never got as close to an otter as that before. And to see it, it was almost like it was a tame otter. It was quite a young otter. It was swimming around quite happily in, in the, the pond in Herbert Park. You could see it feeding. People were walking by. Some people noticed it. Other people didn't even notice mm. it. Yet they were only metres away from it. And as far as I know, the otter is still there. So, like, it was it was an incredible video. It's one of these things that you just come across and you think, my God, did I really see that? An otter swimming in a park in Dublin City. You know, you go out looking for otters. You'd never and see it, yeah. They're the hardest animal to come across. I remember going out with Ken Whelan along the Dodder, not far from where we were there in Herbert Park, one year for a report. We walked along the Dodder. We walked underneath the bridges. We saw some sprains, some of the evidence that otters were around, but we didn't see an otter. And yet here they are, or in this case, one animal. And this one animal is swimming away contentedly, feeding, playing in Herbert Park, surrounded by literally hundreds of people. We'll post that video again. Niall, just before we go, I want to remind everybody listening that the Mooney Goes Wild Birdwatch Ireland Great Big Garden Birdwatch is taking place on Monday 5th of February. Now, what have people got to do? I'm very excited about this. It's great to have this live celebration of garden birds and garden bird watching. We're asking people to let us know on the day what they're seeing in their garden. It's sort of a, an extension or an add-on, I suppose, to Birdwatch Ireland's annual Irish Garden Bird Survey, where we ask people over a 13-week period to keep track of the birds that are in their garden. In this case, we want to know what you're seeing on the day itself, on, on that bank holiday, on the, on the 5th of February. Uh, and then let us know. Uh, you can contact us via WhatsApp or via email. The details will be up on the, on the show website in due course, rte.ie slash Mooney. Please let us know what's happening. And also, we'll have our panel of experts available on the day too. I'll be, I'll be there with you in the studio, Derek. Yep. So if you have any questions about garden birds, please feel free to ask. We, we, we'd love to be put to the test. We want to hear from you. Go to the website right now to find out more details. rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Terry, thank you very much indeed. Niall, thank you very much indeed. That's all we have time for. Thanks also to Aina Nilana, Richard Collins, Michael Sheridan and all of our other contributors who took part in the programme today. Our broadcast coordinator is Daniel Keating and our researcher is Michelle Brown. We'll do it all again next week. To the And Mooney Goes Wild was presented and produced by Derek Mooney. Email Mooney at rte.ie.